Chapter Six of Love Insurance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Andrus. Love Insurance by Earl Dare Vickers. Chapter Six. Ten Minutes of Agony. All I ask. Mr. Harrowby, is that you consent to a short interview with your brother. Mr. Trimmer was speaking. The time was noon of the following day, and Trimmer faced Lord Harrowby in the sitting-room of his lordship's hotel suite. Also present, at Harrowby's invitation, were Martin Wall and Mr. Minnett. His lordship turned his gray eyes on Trimmer's eager face. He could make those eyes fishy when he liked. He made them so now. He is not my brother, he said coldly, and I shall not see him. May I ask you not to call me Mr. Harrowby? You may ask till you're red in your noble face, replied Trimmer firm in his disrespect. But I shall go on calling you Mr. just the same. I call you that because I know the facts, just as I call your poor cheated brother, who was in this hotel last night between sandwich boards, Lord Harrowby. Really, said his lordship, I see no occasion for prolonging this interview. Mr. Trimmer leaned forward. He was a big man, but his face was incongruously thin, almost axe-like. The very best sort of face to thrust in anywhere. And Trimmer was the very man to do the thrusting without batting an eye. Do you deny, he demanded with the air of a prosecutor, that you had an older brother by the name of George? I certainly do not, answered Lord Harrowby. George ran off to America some twenty-two years ago. He died in a mining camp in Arizona twelve years back. There is no question whatever about that. We had it on the most reliable authority. A lot of lies, said Trimmer, can be had on good authority. This situation illustrates that. Do you think, Mr. Harrowby, that I'd be wasting my time on this proposition if I wasn't dead sure of my facts? Why, poor old George has the evidence in his possession. Incontrovertible proofs. It wouldn't hurt you to see him and look over what he has to offer. Your lordship, Minnett suggested, you know that I am your friend, and that my great desire is to see you happily married next week. In order that nothing may happen to prevent, I think you ought to see. This impostor, cut in his lordship haughtily, no, I cannot. This is not the first time adventurers have questioned the Harrowby title. The dignity of our family demands that I refuse to take any notice whatsoever. 
go on sneered trimmer hide behind your dignity when i get through with you you won't have enough left to conceal your stick-pin trimmer said martin wall speaking for the first time how much money do you want mr trimmer kept his temper admirably your society has not corrupted me mr wall he said sweetly i am not a blackmailer i am simply a publicity man i'm working on a salary which lord harrowby the real lord harrowby is to pay me when he comes into his own i've handled successfully in publicity campaigns prima donnas pills erasers perfumes holding companies racehorses soups and society leaders it isn't likely that i shall fall down on this proposition for the last time mr allan harrowby will you see your brother lord harrowby if i were you minute began my dear fellow his lordship raised one slim hand it is quite impossible which i take it terminates our talk with mr trimmer yes said mr trimmer rising except for one thing our young friend here when he urges you to grant my request is giving a correct imitation of a wise head on youthful shoulders he's an american and he knows about me about henry trimmer i guess you never heard mr harrowby what i did for cottrell's ink eraser come on said mr wall militantly erase yourself for the moment i will smiled mr trimmer but i warn you mr harrowby you are going to be sorry you aren't up against any piker in publicity no siree that little sandwich-board stunt of mine last night was just a starter i'm going to take the public into partnership put it up to the people that's my motto good day sir snapped lord harrowby put it up to the people and when i pull off the little trick i thought of this morning you're going to get down before me on your noble knees and beg off i warn you good day gentlemen and may i add one simple request on parting watch trimmer he went out slamming the door behind him mr wall rose and walked rapidly toward a decanter rather tough on you lord harrowby he remarked pouring himself a drink especially just now the fresh bounder ought to have been kicked out of the room an impostor snorted harrowby a rank impostor of course mr wall set down his glass but don't worry if trimmer gets too obstreperous i'll take care of him myself i guess i'll be going back to the yacht after wall's departure minnett and harrowby sat staring at each other for a long moment see here your lordship said minnett at last you know why i'm in san marco that wedding next tuesday must take place without fail and i can't say that i approve of your action just now my dear boy 
Harrowby interrupted soothingly. I appreciate your position, but there was nothing to be gained by seeing Mr. Trimmer's friend. The Meyricks were distressed, naturally, by that ridiculous sandwich board affair last evening, but they have made no move to call off the wedding on account of it. The best thing to do, I'm sure, is to let matters take their course. I might be able to prove that chap's claim's false, and then again I mightn't, even if I knew they were false. And there is a third possibility. What is that? He might really be George. But you said your brother died twelve years ago. That is what we heard, but one cannot be sure, and delighted as I should be to know that George is alive, naturally I should prefer to know it after next Tuesday. Anger surged into Minnet's heart. Is that fair to the young lady who, who is to become my wife? Lord Harrowby waved his hand. It is. Miss Merrick is not marrying me for my title. As for her father and aunt, I cannot be so sure. I want no disturbance. You want none. I am sure it is better to let things take their course. All right, said Minnet. Only I intend to do everything in my power to put this wedding through. My dear chap, your cause is mine, answered his lordship. Minnet returned to the narrow confines of his room. On the bureau, where he had thrown it earlier in the day, lay an invitation to dine that night with Mrs. Bruce. Thus was Jack Paddock's hand shown. The dinner was to be in Miss Merrick's honor, and Mr. Minnet was not sorry he was to go. He took up the invitation and re-read it smilingly. So he was to hear Mrs. Bruce at her own table, the wittiest hostess in San Marco, bar none. The drowsiness of a Florida midday was in the air. Mr. Minnet lay down on his bed. A hundred thoughts were his. The brown of Miss Merrick's eyes, the sincerity of Mr. Trimmer's voice when he spoke of his proposition, the fishy look of Lord Harrowby refusing to meet his long-lost brother. Things grew hazy. Mr. Minnet slept. On leaving Lord Harrowby's rooms, Mr. Martin Wall did not immediately set out for the Lilith, on which he lived in preference to the hotel. Instead, he took a brisk turn about the spacious lobby of the Delapay. People turned to look at him as he passed. They noted that his large, placid, rather jovial face was lighted by an eye sharp and queer, and a bit out of place amidst its surroundings. Mr. Wall considered himself the true cosmopolite, and his history rather bore out the boast. Many and odd were the lands that he had known him. He had loaned money to a prince of Algiers, on excellent security, broken bread with a sultan, 
organized a baseball nine in Cuba, and coming home from the east via the Indian ports, had flirted on shipboard with the wife of a Russian Grand Duke. As he passed through that cool lobby, it was not to be wondered at that Middle West merchants and their wives found him worthy of a second glance. The courtyard of the Hotel de la Paix was fringed by a series of modish shops, with doors opening both on the courtyard and on the narrow street outside. Among these, occupying a corner room, was the very smart jewel shop of Ostby and Blake. Occasionally, in the winter resorts of the South, one may find jewelry shops whose stock would bear favorably competition with Fifth Avenue. Ostby and Blake conducted such an establishment. For a moment before the show window of this shop, Mr. Wall paused, and with the eye of a connoisseur, studied the brilliant display within. His whole manner changed. The air of boredom with which he had surveyed his fellow travelers of the lobby disappeared. On the instant, he was alert, alive, almost eager. Jauntily, he strolled into the store. One clerk only, a tall, thin man with a sallow complexion and hair the color of a lemon, was in charge. Mr. Wall asked to be shown the stock of unset diamonds. The trays that the man set before him caused the eyes of Mr. Wall to brighten still more. With a manner almost reverent, he stooped over and passed his fingers lovingly over the stones. For an instant, the tall man glanced outside and smiled a sallow smile. A little girl in a pink dress was crossing the street, and it was at her that he smiled. There's a flaw in that stone, said Mr. Wall in a voice of sorrow. See? From outside came the shrill scream of a child interrupting. The tall man turned quickly to the window. My God, he moaned. What is it? Mr. Wall sought to look over his shoulder. Automobile. My little girl, cried the clerk in agony. He turned to Martin Wall, hesitating. His sallow face was white now. His lips trembled. Doubtfully he gazed into the frank, open countenance of Martin Wall. And then, I leave you in charge, he shouted, and fled past Mr. Wall to the street. For a moment, Martin Wall stood, frozen, to the spot. His eyes were unbelieving. His little Cupid's bow mouth was wide open. Here, come back, he shouted when he could find his voice. No one heeded. No one heard. Outside, in the street, a crowd had gathered. Martin Wall wet his dry lips with his tongue. An unaccountable shudder swept his huge frame. My God, he cried in a voice of terror, I'm alone. For the first time he dared to move. His elbow bumped 
a hundred thousand dollars worth of unset diamonds frightened he drew back he collided with a showcase rich in emeralds rubies and aquamarines he put out a plump hand to steady himself it rested on a display case of french russian and dutch silver mr wall's knees grew weak he felt a strange prickly sensation all over him he took a step and was staring at the finest display of black pearls south of maiden lane new york quickly he turned away his eyes fell upon the door of a huge safety vault it was swinging open little beads of perspiration began to pop out on the forehead of martin wall his heart was hammering like that of a youth who sees after a long separation his lady love his eyes grew glassy he took out a silk handkerchief and passed it slowly across his damp forehead staggering slightly he stepped again to the trays of unset stones the glassy eyes had grown greedy now he put out one huge hand as the lover aforesaid might reach toward his lady's hair then mr wall shut his lips firmly and thrust both of his hands deep into his trousers pockets he stood there in the middle of that gorgeous room a fat figure of a man suffering a cruel inhuman agony he was still standing thus when the tall man came running back apprehension clouded that sallow face it was very kind of you the small eyes of the clerk darted everywhere then came back to martin wall i'm obliged why what's the matter sir martin wall passed his hand across his eyes as a man banishing a terrible dream the little girl he asked hardly a scratch said the clerk pointing to the smiling child at his side it was lucky wasn't it he was behind the counter now studying the trays unprotected on the showcase very lucky martin wall still had to steady himself perhaps you'd like to look about a bit before i go oh no sir everything's all right i'm sure you were looking at these stones some other time said wall weakly i only wanted an idea of what you had good day sir and thank you very much not at all and the limp ex-guardian passed unsteadily from the store into the glare of the street mr tom stacy of the manhattan club half dozing on the veranda of his establishment was rejoiced to see his old friend martin wall crossing the pavement toward him well martin he began and then a look of concern came into his face good lord man what ails you mr wall sank like a wet rag to the steps tom he said a terrible thing has just happened i was left alone in ostby and blake's jewelry shop alone cried mr stacy 
you alone absolutely alone mr stacy leaned over are you leaving town in a hurry he asked gloomily mr wall shook his head he put me on my honor he complained left me in charge of the shop can you beat it of course after that i well you know somehow i couldn't do it i tried but i couldn't mr stacy threw back his head and his raucous laughter smote the lazy summer afternoon i can't help it he gasped the funniest thing i ever you the best stone thief in america alone in charge of three million dollars worth of those stuff good heavens man whispered wall not so loud and well might he protest for mr stacy's indiscreet and mirthful tone carried far it carried for example to mr richard minnett standing hidden behind the curtains of his little room overhead come inside martin said stacy come inside and have a bracer you sure must need it after that i do replied mr wall in heartfelt tones he rose and followed tom stacy cheeks burning eyes popping mr minnett watched them disappear into the manhattan club here was news indeed lord harrowby's boon companion the ablest jewel thief in america just what did that mean putting on a coat and hat he hurried to the hotel office and there wrote a cablegram situation suspicious are you dead certain h is on the level an hour later in his london office mr jeffson read this message carefully three times End of chapter 6